is Diagnosis Glaucoma with your hosts, Dr. Mona Colleen and Dr. Harry Quigley. Hello, and welcome back to this continuation of our discussion on glaucoma surgery. In this episode, we're going to be talking about aqueous tube shunts. Well, most patients with glaucoma actually will never get surgery. So I guess we're talking about surgery so that people will know if that ever happened to them, what would it be like and what would they need to know in order to choose the best? So Harry, in our last episode, we talked about trabeculectomy and how that was one of the earliest glaucoma surgeries that we continue to do today and how successful it's been. What about the tube shunt? When did that start coming about? In the late 60s and early 70s, Dr. Tony Maltino, who was from down under, began putting tubes connected to little reservoirs under the surface of the eye. And for quite a long time, Dr. Maltino himself and a few people that he taught were the only ones who were doing that procedure. It was sort of considered a fringe behavior. It was done in two stages. A lot of systemic oral medicines were given to people in order to try to make it most effective. And 30 years later, or a little more, Dr. Maltino presented the results of his findings once everybody else in the world had caught on to the fact that he really had invented a general type of procedure that's quite useful now. So if trabeculectomy was such a good procedure, why did we need to have a tube? The tube shunt procedures began because not everybody succeeded with trabeculectomy or someone had a trabeculectomy and it worked for a long period of time and then stopped working well to control pressure. And when a second one was done, the result was sometimes not as good as the first one. So we really needed something that was the next step, but that would be equally safe and preserving of vision. And that's where the tube shunts came in. Just to tag on to that, remember that some of the risks of failure of trabeculectomy include things like young age, myopia, or having a thin sclera. Anyone who's prone to scarring is at risk for a trab failure, or if you have poor conjunctiva, that's the white skin on the front of the eye. Anything that I missed? Well, certainly the thing that trabeculectomy didn't work well with were people with secondary forms of glaucoma. So those who had neovascular glaucoma, new blood vessels in the eye, or uveitis. And those procedures that work in people that have plain open-angle glaucoma, like trabeculectomy, simply didn't work as well for people with secondary glaucoma because there was much more inflammation and much more scarring in the eye, as you've just said. Right. So you should have a discussion with your doctor about, first of all, if you need to have glaucoma surgery, do they recommend a trabeculectomy or a tube shunt? And in terms of deciding which one to have, you should ask your doctor if they think that you're at risk for failure of trabeculectomy. You should also discuss with them things like what your intraocular pressure target is. You should think about what your goals are with respect to using eye drops. So is your goal to completely come off of all glaucoma medications, or are you okay with using a few even after surgery? Other things to consider are recovery time. So with the trabeculectomy and the tube shunt, the recovery time is a little bit longer than it is with minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries, which we'll discuss later on. And you should also have frank discussion with what the expectations are in the short versus the long term, because there are published studies 
on outcomes of both trabeculectomy and aqueous tube shunts. The first of those was called the Tube versus Trab study or TVT study. And it was really a landmark study led by our colleagues from the Bascom Palmer Institute in Miami. In that study, people who'd had some prior surgery, whether that be cataract surgery or a previous trabeculectomy, were randomly assigned to either tube shunt surgery or trabeculectomy. Now, at the time, we thought it wasn't very likely that one or the other of those was going to come out far ahead. And indeed, the tubes did very, very well in that particular setting. In some aspects, they did better than trabeculectomy. In some aspects, the trabeculectomy did better. But what it did was to place the tube shunt surgery squarely in a position of an alternative, satisfactory choice for someone who'd had some prior surgeries. In addition, it showed us that both procedures, while they work very, very well, still in some cases, someone winds up taking eye drops, though fewer eye drops than they were taking before the surgery. The reassuring thing is that a very large number of people in that study monitored very carefully maintain the vision they had at the start of the surgeries. And that tells us that whichever of those two was chosen, the patients did very well to retain their reading ability. There was also a study called the Primary Tube versus Trab Study, and that also looked at outcomes of how patients did with either of the procedures, but these were patients who had never had any other eye surgery before. What the results showed us was that basically in terms of intraocular pressure reduction, the trabeculectomy did give a little bit more IOP reduction. However, the tube shunt procedure was associated with fewer complications. And the complications are a little bit different. With the trabeculectomy, when there was a problem, the problem was often that the pressure was too good, in other words, too low. And when you have a dysfunctionally low pressure, the eye has variable vision or sometimes vision that's not satisfactory, and the pressure needs to be raised. That's uncommon with tube shunt surgery, but the tube shunts involve placing an artificial material. It's a tube connected to a plastic reservoir. And that material can give rise to problems on its own, including not staying where you put it and coming out and appearing at the surface, or so-called extrusion. There are actually two major types of tubes. There's one that has a valve and one that does not have a valve. So the tube implant that has a valve is technically supposed to stop functioning once the intraocular pressure reaches about eight or so. So technically your pressure should not be dropping below that. With the other type of shunt, which is a non-valved shunt, well, that's a little bit less predictable. We actually use a suture to tie that tube and that suture stays in place for about four to six weeks. So the tube isn't really fully functioning until around that time. With each of the tubes, the tube is either open or closed. With the valve one, it's open from day one. And if that's the right degree of opening, that's fine. But you can't alter it. It's set it and forget it. With the one that doesn't have a valve, we can tie it shut and wait for it to open itself. But once again, once it's open, that's what you get. And it may be that it's too wide open. The interesting thing is that very low pressure with the tube shunts is less common than it is with trabeculectomy. In terms of the valve shunts, the most popular one is called the Ahmed tube shunt. It's spelled A-H-M-E-D. That has a valve. That's the one that's supposed to stop working. 
when it reaches a pressure that's a little bit too low. The non-valve shunts, there are several types that are still around. There's the bare valve and also something new called the clear path shunt. Those are the ones that Harry was talking about where you use a suture to tie them off. Patients often ask, well, where does the water go? So it goes from the interior of the eye, where the end of the tube is, back behind the eyeball, but up around the tissues around your eye, which we call the orbit. Those are the bones that contain the eye. So essentially, you're draining the fluid off into the spaces behind the eye, and from there, it ultimately is sopped up either back into the bloodstream or through what are called lymphatic channels. The degree to which healing happens back there determines whether the pressure winds up being just where we want it, in other words, at the target, or too high and you're back on drops or even so high that you need reoperation. Now, neither trabeculectomy nor tube shunt surgery are ideally perfectly successful, but the success rate as a first operation in this primary tube versus trab study was pretty good with three quarters of the people doing well for so far three years, whether they had one procedure or the other type. And in terms of deciding which tube shunt to have, what do you think, Harry? Which one do you recommend? As you know, Mona, the typical way that we do that is with a randomized clinical trial. And doctors love doing acronyms for clinical trials. So there've been several trials done where one of the tube types is randomly assigned to one group and the other tube type is randomly assigned to the other. And those have pretty much come out, if you wanted to boil it all down to a very easy answer, the two tubes are very close to each other. One of them maybe has a slightly greater success rate, but it also has a slightly greater complication rate. So if you're interested in the one that maybe isn't going to quite work as well, but doesn't cause quite as many problems, you'd pick tube type A, and otherwise you'd pick tube type B. I think also you have to depend on what the surgeon who is helping you feels most comfortable with. I've actually had surgeons send me patients, and they say, well, I don't do this kind of tube, I do that kind of tube, and this patient needs the kind that you do, so why don't you do that for the patient? The surgeon has to feel comfortable because the inserting of them, I would say it's a little different, do you think? It's a little bit different. Perhaps there can be some slight differences in technique, especially with the post-op management. And post-op management is very important to glaucoma surgery. So it's not just the actual surgery on the day of and one day after the surgery. It's the first few weeks to months after the surgery that are very critical. And as Harry is saying, you want to work with a doctor who's comfortable in managing that type of a tube shunt postoperatively. Patients also ask me, is somebody going to see that I've got a tube in my eye? And the answer is no. Most of us are now using both tube shunts and materials associated with the tube shunt that are clear, and so your eye doesn't look any different from how your eye looked before. All of this work is done, if you could think of it, as up under your eyelid somewhere. The nice thing about the aqueous tube shunts is that it can be done for almost any kind of glaucoma, whether it's an open angle or a closed angle. It can also be done in situations where there are secondary forms of glaucoma. It can be done in cases where there's trauma. In fact, sometimes it's the preferred surgery in patients who have had some kind of an eye trauma. Now that we know that it can be done as a primary or first operation, we're also using tube shunts for people who are really wedded to wearing contact lenses. 
you can't wear a contact lens safely if you've had a trabeculectomy because the contact lens bangs into the area of surgery on the top of the eye. But with a tube shot, you can very successfully wear pretty much any kind of contact lens you want. So I have some very nearsighted younger patients who needed glaucoma surgery, and for that reason, they chose having tube shunt surgery in each eye. You just brought up a good point when you mentioned age. So aqueous tube shunts can be done in patients of all ages also. They're particularly challenging in kids. Imagine that we put an artificial limb on a child and the rest of the kid grew. Well, you'd have to make the artificial limb longer, for example. And that's easy enough to do with an artificial leg. But with the tube shunts, as the eye grows, children sometimes find that the tube moves, and that gives us some interesting problems. Those are fortunately very uncommon, and only serious specialty areas that see a lot of kids with glaucoma see those problems. Another thing to mention is that if you've had another eye surgery in the past, like cataract surgery, or as we've already discussed, the trabeculectomy, or even one of the minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries, you are still someone who's a candidate for an aqueous tube shunt. So the history of a previous eye surgery, it should not stop you from having a tube shunt if you are a good candidate for that. I did want to bring up one point with you, Harry, which is the issue of the cornea, so the window of the eye, the front of the eye. So an individual who does have a corneal disease or who's at risk for some kind of a complication where maybe the cornea gets clouded or where they've had a cornea transplant, that can kind of change how we do a tube shunt. Can you share some of your feedback on that? Yeah, the tube is about 200 microns. That's two-tenths of a millimeter in diameter internally, and maybe twice as big as that externally. Well, that fits between the two structures in the eye where the tube goes in. It goes in between the cornea and the iris. And there's quite a bit more space in many eyes than that, say, 400 microns of distance where the tube is. But when the surgeon puts the tube in, if it's too close to the cornea, it can be touching the cornea on a repetitive basis, and that's bad for the most internal cells of the cornea, and can wind up leading to corneal clouding. If you're someone who's had a corneal transplant, you have a delicate situation of wanting to preserve every one of those internal corneal cells so you don't want the tube anywhere near the new cornea. And as a result, we will often place it behind the colored part of the eye, behind the iris in what's called the sulcus. Or we might even place it closer to the back of the eye by doing vitrectomy, removal of the vitreous surgery, and putting the tube shunt through the back wall of the eye much more posteriorly through what's called the pars plana. And those really work very well but we have to be very careful about where the tube goes. And there's quite a lot of research right now going on on the overall subject of how does the cornea do when you do any one of the glaucoma surgeries, trabeculectomy, tube shunt surgery, and the newer ones, because one of the newer surgeries actually had to be pulled from the market because they were anticipating that the level of damage that was going on to the cornea was going to lead to significant problems in the future. If I'm doing a glaucoma surgery on someone who's had a cornea transplant or who has a history of a bad corneal disease and they're at really high risk, I'll talk to them about that risk. I'll also maybe suggest putting the tube shunt in a different part of the eye, as you just mentioned, or maybe just not doing that procedure at all. It's really important to be informed on the risks and the benefits 
of these procedures. And again, if you're someone who has a corneal disease, to really ask that question about what the potential impact could be on your cornea. I will say that this procedure is being done along with a keratoprosthesis that is a cornea prosthesis. And well, if you're someone who's a candidate for a keratoprosthesis, we assume that you also are being seen with a glaucoma specialist. And if you're not, then you should be because the procedures that are done for individuals who have a cornea prosthesis are generally done as part of a team effort with a cornea surgeon, a glaucoma specialist, and sometimes also a retina specialist. Yeah, Mona, I think if we were to talk about the problems that occur uncommonly, but they do occur with tube shunt surgery, people have asked me, well, are you putting something that has a certain weight to it on the eye? How is my eye going to move when you've added that much weight to it? Well, you know, if I add a little weight to my left arm with my watch, my arm gets used to it. And these things don't weigh very much. So the eye generally moves pretty well with the tube shunt attached to it. But there are occasional persons whose eyes don't move normally and they see double. That's most often temporary. After a period of time, the person gets used to it. Another thing that we've seen is that the area over which the water is collecting behind the tube can look large and maybe be cosmetically not so acceptable. So on occasion, we have to either make that area smaller or even remove the tube because of the large bubble that forms behind there. And that bubble is called the bleb, B-L-E-B. We also talked about the bleb with trabeculectomy surgery. I think the other things we talked about already are extrusion of the tube. But if you compare it to trabeculectomy, the chance of infection overall is potentially much smaller with tube shunt surgery. So if, for example, someone had one of these procedures in one eye, let's say they had a trabeculectomy done in the first eye and they were needing surgery in the second eye, and that surgery in the first eye hadn't gone very well, surgery failed, or there was one of the uncommon complications. It's why we would very often say, well, let's do the other kind of surgery for your second eye, hoping that it's going to do better than the first one did, rather than trying to repeat something we already knew had a problem. Another question you may be asking yourself is, well, how long is this tube? Well, the tubes are pretty short. The surgeon is going to make a decision about how long to cut it at the time of the surgery. But if the tube is long and it runs through your visual access, the good news is it should not impact your vision. Often, people will say that they feel like their vision is a little bit worse after a tube shunt procedure. Remember that after having any eye surgery, that your prescription for your glasses can change. And also, if you have a cataract, if you already have your natural lens in place, you are at a greater risk for getting clouding of the lens and getting a cataract sooner in life than you would have if you had not had any glaucoma surgery. So yes, sometimes the vision can go down. However, cataract is removable and the vision is restored. So while we don't like the fact that cataract speeds up in all glaucoma patients and is speeded up by all of our treatments, we're glad that we can actually restore vision and get rid of the cataract and put a new plastic lens in the eye. While we're mentioning that, something that you could consider a complication is that the eyelid frequently hangs a little lower for a period of time, sometimes three months to six months after any eye surgery. And people will often say to me, Dr. Quigley, my eye got smaller after your operation. Because when your eyelid is a little lower, it looks like your eye's smaller. 
but in fact the eye is no smaller at lower pressure than it is at higher pressure. It's just that the eyelid's a little bit low. If that winds up being a functional problem or a cosmetic problem, we can fix it by shortening the little tendon that holds up the eyelid and making the eyelid be back up where somebody wants it to be. It's very important that if you have an aqueous tube shunt or the trabeculectomy, which we discussed before, that you not rub your eye aggressively afterwards. That puts you at risk for getting exposure or extrusion of the plate or even the tube. People also ask, well, how long will this thing work? And like with any operation, there is an immediate success and an immediate failure. The immediate success rate would be 85%. Over the years after the operation, one or 2% of people will have the tube shunt or trabeculectomy cease to work as ideally as it was before, and they'll need to go back on medicines. So if you look at it, it looks like a great big spike of success followed by a slow decline down to five years or 10 years. But I have people who've had this tube shunt surgery done 15 or 20 years ago, and it's still working just as well now as it was three to five years after it was done. So this can be a very long-term solution. All right. And anything else you wanted to add to this discussion, Harry? Well, we're always looking forward to more improvements in tube shunt surgery. And we would love it to be more adjustable. We'd love it to be less likely to come out. And our group, led by my colleague and your colleague, Ian Pitha, has been working with a company to develop some really interesting new and novel materials out of which a tube shunt can be made. And those are just about to be tried for the first time in humans. And we're looking forward very much to seeing whether there'll actually be an improvement over the existing tubes. That'll be exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing what Ian finds. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us on this episode, and we will see you next time. And what's that website again? www.diagnosisglaucoma.com. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, your mom says take your drops.